Hello, and welcome to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. This is where we look at various nutrition and fitness-related topics through the lens of application. We want to give you practical takeaways so that you can create your healthiest, best self backed by knowledge. Now, on to the episode with your host, Coach Lisa. Hello, and welcome back to the Nutrition and Life Podcast. My name is Lisa. I'm your host. And today I have the pleasure of speaking with Mike Chalice from Revive Stronger. He's actually our first return guest here on the show. So welcome, Mike. I'm super excited to more or less continue our conversation, but also just get a little bit deeper into some of the topics we've already touched on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me back, Lisa. I, I really enjoyed our last conversation. I couldn't wait to come back on. And I was thinking about whether I was the first to come back on as a, as a second guest. And I was like, oh, yes, I can actually be on Lisa's <laughs> of Fame. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And yeah, like I said, Mike is a coach and with Revive Stronger, so with Steve Hall, but he's also a physiotherapist and a bodybuilder himself. And um, in case you haven't lis listened to our first episode together, that was, I believe, in October. Um, but yeah, I'll link it in the show notes as well. And I'm excited to hear what's been happening since we last spoke. So when, so when we last spoke, you literally had just finished your competitive season a couple of days before that. And now you're deep into um, the reverse or maintenance. So tell us what's been going on. Yeah, so it's it's been great. And, you know, I've been really lucky where actually my recovery post contest was very quite quick in comparison to some other people. And um, so what I did was I leading into my last competition of the season, I was reverse dieting and I'd already started reverse dieting where we'd started to build the calories back up. And I think in some ways that had given me a bit of a head start in terms of allowing my body to start some of those recovery processes. But then I would probably say I felt more or less back to normal, maybe within kind of like five or six weeks in terms of kind of energy levels, less food focus, um, you know, libido was improving again and all of those kind of factors. And so that was just, you know, fantastic news, which was great. And then I really started to push my training after I would probably say four weeks post kind of ending the season. And really, it's been really interesting for me because I've probably been pushing my training to not to one RAR. So almost like kind of failure training or at very close proximity to that for maybe the past five weeks or so. Yeah. And typically for, you know, someone, they might only want to be doing that for maybe, or they might only be able to tolerate that for one to two weeks. So for me, it's been quite a novel experience. And I think there's probably a lots of factors to that where there's probably been, you know, an increased neural drive in terms of recovery post kind of fatigue and contest and just that influx of food and that kind of freshness and so on. I think a lot of those factors have combined. But I think like a lesson for the listeners to take away, which is in line with the current research, is that you don't necessarily have to have prescribed periods of deloads. I mean, you can have that align with your lifestyle when you might be traveling or, or when there's a big event coming up. But if your training performance is improving and if your psychological and lifestyle factors are aligning well, you know, there isn't, you know, you don't have to deload at a fixed period of time and you can really be flexible with that. So, you know, that this has been a great kind of lesson for me and maybe for some of the listeners to take away as well. 
Awesome. Thank you for highlighting that. I think that that's a really important thing to to say. And yeah, I think we briefly touched on deloads and when we last spoke, but I'm curious in terms of your training program now, is it actually um, similar slash the same as what you were doing during contest prep? Is it higher in volume? Is it lower in volume? Is it Did you add some new exercises just to keep things a little bit more interesting? Tell us a bit about your training. Yeah, so I would say the overall layout so far hasn't changed drastically. So the actual split is the same. So I'm still, for me, I can still train six times per week, um, which is great. And the general, the even like in terms of what body parts that I'm focusing on, that more or less has remained the same because the feedback that I got from other people was that there wasn't a particular body part that was lacking or weak. It was just more, everything just needs to kind of come up really. And so my volume, I would say that I could probably I tolerate quite a high volume anyway. Um, I, we don't, I, I don't know for sure, but from my experience, I probably have a bit more of a slower fiber type disposition. And so I can probably, and I recover very well from training. So my volume at the moment is very high. Um, for some body parts, that is over 20 sets per week. Um, so I would say, yes, volume is very high at the moment, um, but my body seems to be recovering and tolerating that really well at the moment, which is awesome. Awesome. Yeah, cool. I just thought that that's sometimes another discussion that people have in the sense of um, what it should training be different, contest prep or in a calorie deficit versus in a surplus surplus slash at maintenance and um, something that you mentioned off air the other day too was that actually your maintenance calories now are a little bit lower than they were um, before you started contest prep which I guess um, you know obviously we can just speculate but um, uh, probably your overall body weight is lower also and then just possibly still kind of dealing with some metabolic adaptation through um, the dieting process Um but you mentioned you're not you're not actually hungry now or it's not having any negative effects per se mm, and that's a really good point Lisa and do you know what's really interesting which I didn't specifically say last time but we probably me and my coach Steve Hall we probably think that actually I probably lost some muscle mass in my kind of prep and contest season because I think a mistake slash big lesson that I learned last time was that I probably slightly over dieted myself my rate of loss really dramatically increased during the actual season itself. And like all of my um, competitions were back-to-back -back weekends. And so that probably had quite a big, probably more than I gave credit to psychological and physical stress on my body. Mm. So I probably lost a little bit of muscle mass during the competition season, which probably affected that, um, that maintenance side of the diet. Um, so that's probably affected things as well. Um, But again, like kind of we talked about the other day as well, and that the research is showing as well, is that even if you're an advanced trainee, you know, even being at kind of a maintenance or, you know, a very small surplus, even that can, that kind of promotes that kind of muscle gain and promotes that kind of side of things. So yeah, it's just very interesting. Well, the great thing is also that you've committed to at least a whole year, probably more of, of, of building now, as opposed to going into a deficit again or, or competing towards the end of the year so i think yeah that's awesome bring on 2024 <laughs> oh yeah for sure it's um it's sorry this is a bit of a tangent but you might have heard that sometimes um like they say you can sort of almost put a word to the year that that you're gonna have 
And um, it's funny, I was just kind of, you know, reflecting, you know, during the new year and just a word that naturally just came to my mind was growth, which sounds really kind of cheesy and, you know, a bit cliche, but it was just something that kind of came to me. I was like, yeah, why not? You know, 2024, let's grow. I think that's awesome, especially when it comes to things like that. We should always listen to like our first instinct as opposed to overthinking things. And I mean, growth um, can be in so many, not just in terms of bodybuilding, personal development, professional, et cetera. So really, really cool. Um, Yes. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk about today with you coming from a physiotherapy background as well and being heavily in the training space was how much time do you actually dedicate or do you recommend your um, clients also dedicate to a warm-up? How important is it really? And also particularly when it comes to like mobility work pre or post-workout, what's what's really worth our time? Because people's time is limited. I, I have many clients where they're like, I have 45, maybe 60 minutes from the time I step into the gym until I have to leave again. I feel like I'm wasting my time by doing these like hip circles for five minutes beforehand. I would be much rather doing, um, I don't know, right going into going right into my squats or so. But yeah, tell us from your professional and personal um opinion also what's really worth it. Yeah. And I think, do you know what? This is a much more nuanced kind of topic than people give it credit for. Um, and I might give a bit of background if that's okay with you, Lisa, Please. just because I think it will help the listeners too. Um, so I guess when we think of a warm up, so a warm up I think has been pretty ubiquitous in terms of you know it's something that's maybe quite essential for people to do, probably even since dating back to like the '90s or maybe slightly before that. And I guess there are two primary bu- buckets which kind of we think warm up is potentially essential in quotes, you know, for, and that could be one performance, you know, we think, okay, well, if you do a warm up, that's going to really benefit your performance. And in the second bucket, injury prevention. So typically a warm up has been sort of touted as a, you know, it's essential for injury, injury reduction or injury prevention. And it's, again, it's really nuanced, this type kind of topic. So when it comes to injury prevention for the first thing. So a lot of the research that has been done on this has primarily been done on team sports like soccer, like, you know, basketball. And again, a lot of it is actually being done on youth and adolescent populations. So for one thing, we probably can't extrapolate that very well to, you know, weight training to bodybuilding and what they've essentially, what has been gleaned from that research that been done is that So they did kind of um, a lot of the strategies that they used was that they took kind of, you know, they did a bit of a dynamic stretching routine, which was then followed by strength exercises. And then they went and which was done at the start of kind of, you know, before they went into playing football or basketball or whatever. And they found from those that essentially there might be a mid to long term effect of doing that consistency consistently but there was no acute immediate benefit from doing that. Okay. So, so we can't really say, and also compliance was a major, major moderator in this. So what they found is that only the people that did it consistently, you know, actually got any benefit of that. 
And they found that dropout rates were a big, big, big part of that. So, so I think we can't say that doing a warm up is going to prevent injury in that session itself, if that kind of makes sense. So, and we also know as a slight kind of side note is that the biggest risk factors for in, for injury are if you've had that injury before, so a previous injury history and potentially strength. So those are probably the biggest risk factors. So I think if you're someone who has had an injury before, maybe you've sort of torn a muscle or you've had a particular injury, maybe there is, you know, um, a space for you for that particular person in doing specific exercises that they find helpful in trying to minimize or, you know, reduce the risk of getting that injury again, potentially, or just making sure that they stay strong. Um, but apart from that, if not, we probably can't say for sure that, you know, we can't say with confidence that, you know, a warm up or anything like that is going to reduce your risk of injury. So, yeah, sorry. Do you want to? Yeah, ask no, something? I was just going to um, uh, insert here in saying that um, I sometimes I would also add that sometimes fatigue is possibly a higher um, contributor to injury than insufficient warm up. Although in saying that, um, of course, I don't want to say that a warm up, especially if you've had a previous injury, is not worth it. But in saying, I, I meant more like. Um, sometimes it's the last set of something or like we think like oh, I'll just do one more thing and you like you can almost notice that your mind is not paying attention that much anymore and then you get injured or you like on a day where you're like feeling super motivated and you're pushing it extra hard and you're like oh darn now you know you you, you push it too hard so I find that too but I'm going back to the um prevention I guess of that happening um I find like let's just say like a common injury that I or ma or many of my clients are dealing with and that I've heard of as you know something maybe sciatica or or lower back type of thing like something with the discs etc and to, from personal experience but also um from what I know with my clients it's often because the muscles around that are not activated enough Mm -hmm. Or like, especially when it comes to like heading into a squat right away without having your glutes fully activated. And so then your spine takes all the load and you're probably going through poor movement patterns. So in that aspect, I think a quote unquote warm up, and we'll probably define that a little bit more in a minute too. Um, mm -hmm. But in, in those instances, I find that's really where I can personally see and feel the benefit of a warm-up or likewise I've mentioned numerous times before that I have struggled very much with lat activation like I just can't couldn't feel them forever and so um and there I, I need to be warm like more the more repetitions the better and only after a while I can actually feel that muscle whereas initially my my first instinct is to go back to what you know, my, my, my initial movement patterns are. So my biceps taking over and in all uh, different movements or shoulders taking over, et cetera. So I think when it comes to activating specific muscles for the sake of injury prevention, but even just for the sake of muscle growth, um, I do believe the warm up is crucial actually, like just, yeah, mm. even if the research might not support it in that sense. And uh, I think that's such a good point, Lisa, such a good point. And but I think what we've also got to take into context as well is that's in the specific context of, say, an injury. But if we're talking about, 
you know, movement patterns, learning new movement patterns, you know, actually this is a great opportunity to do that. Um, and again, by incorporating those exercises that you mentioned, that's reinforcing a movement pattern that mm -hmm. we want. Now, also another really important point for people to understand is that, um, you know, the body, do you know what, actually sometimes bodybuilding is actually not natural to the body. Now, what I'm going to, what I mean by that is your bot, your brain doesn't necessarily think, oh, okay, so I need to do this movement. So I'm going to activate that lat and then I'm going to activate that part of the tree. It doesn't think like that. It just thinks right A to B, and I'm going to do that in the most efficient way possible. It, the body and brain thinks it of efficiency, not like bodybuilding is, is essentially trying to be as inefficient as possible. And so, and so that's why kind of when you were talking about activating your lats, your brain's just thinking, I need to pull this down. So I'm strong in my biceps. So I'm going to use my biceps. And so it's not used to thinking about, oh, I need to activate my lats. So you need to do lots of that activation work to get the brain to think like, oh, okay, right. We're going to use our lats with this sort of thing. So it totally makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, especially like coming from a CrossFit sort of background where you're like literally everything as efficiently as possible form often, you know, goes out the window just in order to be more efficient, to conserve more energy, etc. Um, yeah, absolutely. I can totally, <laughs> totally relate to that. Um, but yeah, let's, let's bring it back to um, the actual warm up in the sense of what parts of a quote unquote warm up would you still or do you include in your training program? Do you prescribe to any uh, clients in their training and, and why specifically also? Yeah, definitely. And I think there was still that. Um, so in terms of specific parts of a warm up, so classically you'd have what's called a general warm up, which is what might be considered where you're just raising your heart rate, which could be like, okay, going for a walk on the treadmill or walking outside or going on the stationary bike or cross trainer, getting your heart rate up, increasing the general blood flow around the body. Within that context, you might do some general movements that could be mobility movements um, and so dynamic leg swings, anything that you could think of just to get your body kind of loose as it were sort of thing, you know, mobilized. Um, and, but then after that, you've then got what's called a more of a specific warm up, and, um, and within that, that would be doing the specific exercise. So if, for example, you know, you were going in and you were doing squats and that was going to be your first exercise of the day, you know, you might sort of just do some body weight squats to start off with, then you might kind of get the bar under your back and then, you know, do some squats with the bar then depending on kind of your strength levels and your training experience, you would then kind of maybe gradually do a few specific warm up sets leading into your working set. So that would be kind of classically what I or anybody else might do or prescribe. Yeah, I like that. So I think for the the general heart rate warm up, something like three to five minutes is usually, you know, totally sufficient. We don't need to Uh, spend a ton of time on that and then mm. the second part might uh, that you mentioned might sound so common sense to you or I or a, a lot of people but then there are so many people they don't do warm-up sets like I I cannot say how surprised 
I sometimes am when people ask me, oh, what weight should I use for this and that set? Number one, that's 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 a question where I'm like, well, I don't know. I don't unfortunately train you in person, so I cannot give you a specific weight. But number two, learn to listen to your body and build up to a challenging weight or whatever the reps and reserve um, is indicated as. But don't just jump into the first working weight. I think, um, yeah, maybe on isolation or machine exercises and once you've done the certain training cycle you know this is like your week 10 of doing that same training week and you know okay for my lateral raises I need the uh, 15 pound dumbbells or whatever sure you don't need to do three warm-up sets on your lateral raises absolutely not but when it comes to those big compound um, movements we most certainly should be starting with body weight progressing to um, empty barbell and then building up maybe at least I would I usually say at least two sets in between uh, empty barbell and working weight for almost for, for most exercises, that is generally what I would like to um, recommend, just so even that you can get your your ner your nervous system and, of course, the muscles um, ready for the actual heavy weight. But um, I personally, and it depends on the, obviously, on I've seen various training programs too. I personally like to put something in between that um, general warm-up and the first movement. So for example, let's stick with the example of your, of the squats. Um, I might do something like um, a few lunges and then some hip swivels and then maybe some body weight good morning so that I'm moving like I'm, I'm it's still specific in the sense of okay I know I'm training my lower body today um and but it's not actually already that first exercise so something where my body moves through various planes where I do activate those muscles, potentially other primers. It might even be something um, a little bit plyometric, maybe some jump squats or so after a while before then starting the actual um, exercise. So that's kind of how I like to approach it, but I know that that's not necessarily um, present in all training programs. Mm. And I think that's, again, such a good point, Lisa. And I think one, one thing that I'd love to share with you, which really opened my eyes and it it didn't necessarily, I would say, drastically change my stance, but it definitely made me more open. And so there was a piece of research done um, by, um, I think, Ribeiro and Ramanzi, 2014. So it was a little while ago, but this was shared on uh, Brand, Brad Schoenfeld's um, Instagram um, page. I don't know if you came across it or not. Have you come across that no, research? No, no, it doesn't. I don't know wh which one you're going um, for, but no, it doesn't ring a bell. Oh, so um, basically, so it was, it's so fascinating. So basically they did a, um, so, it was the, so they did a crossover design trial. So that just basically means that when participants try, they kind of try the different interventions. Mm -hmm. They did four different warm-up interventions. They did no warm-up. They, one group did a general warm-up. Another one was a specific warm-up. And then another one was, the general plus the specific warm-up. So those four different types. And what they did was they were, they had some experience with lifting, but they weren't advanced lifters. But then what they would do is they would do 80% um, of their one rep max on the bench press, the squat and the bicep curl, and they would do four sets to failure. And what they found is that in all of those groups, the performance was similar 
across the board. And so what basically they took away from that is that for kind of sub, so for bodybuilding training and sub-maximal reps, a warm-up doesn't affect performance. Mm -hmm. So we can't, so from that particular study, we can't say that kind of a warm-up enhances performance for bodybuilding training, which is sub-maximal. Now, this is really different. So again, to take this into context is if you are someone who's maybe a powerlifter, who's someone who's going to be doing some maximal sprints that day, or, you know, you're working up to something very maximal, it's probably, you know, warm-up's going to be more important for you. And there has been studies to show that, you know, very dynamic loading does improve and enhance performance in that kind of maximal effort training. But again, if you're someone who that, you know, is probably not going up to maximal, maximal lifting, actually it's those early repetitions in a set serve as a specific warm-up in and of itself. So, and, and what do we know about warm-ups? We know that warm-ups take time, even if it's kind of 10 minutes, it is time. And something that you mentioned before we started recording, Lisa, is sometimes clients, they say, I've got 45 minutes in the gym total. What do I need to be doing? So we need to be super efficient. Really? So I think, so I think it's something which given that, and obviously it's only one piece of research, but I think given that we need to think a bit critically and think, okay, well, what is my client doing? Are they doing bodybuilding training and kind of, they're going to be building up to it? Well, in that situation, and also what's their background? Are they walking to the gym? Well, okay. In that scenario, they're walking to the gym. So they're probably getting a bit of blood flow and general warm up anyway. So there's, and we know again, from what we've just talked about earlier that, you know, acutely there's no, you know, injury preventive effects of a warm up. So we probably know that if they walk to the gym, they could probably get stuck into, they could probably do a set of their exercise and then they could probably get stuck in. And we know that actually from a performance and an injury preventative perspective, it's okay to do that. Equally, if they're a bit more of an advanced trainer, if we, if they know they feel better for doing specific things and it's going to enhance their performance or they're working up to a maximal lift, or they've got an injury, pre, a previous injury history, etc., then, okay, we need to think about doing other things leading into that. But, um, but yeah, yeah, I kind of, I no, I love how you differentiated there also with the focus of hypertrophy and strength, um, training, because I think that that is really often, um, overlooked or people hear like, oh, this and that has been studied for muscle growth or this and that has been studied in a, a hypertrophy study and they overhear the hypertrophy and they themselves train for strength. And then they're like, oh, that tells me I don't need to do a warm up, blah, 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 blah. And then they get injured and they're like, oh, well, whoop de doo, here I go. Or right. vice versa, someone else might be saying, like, why am I wasting my time with this? I, I might as well just go into my maybe some pre exhaust sets of um, leg curls and I don't know, abductions right away before I go into my squats. And that serves as my warm up, even though it's actually my first actual exercise. And I don't need to waste my time with uh, 50 air squats beforehand. So, Yeah, I really, really want to highlight that that said and just people encourage people to think about what they're training for and and how they're training, more importantly, because you mentioned 
they're not uh, to failure sets again. <laughs> like, unfortunately, I, I know very, very many people that basically train to failure, even though they say they're not, but train to failure almost all the time. Um, and, and like, I'm more on that side too. Like I tend to push it too hard. So, <laughs> so I need to hold myself back a little bit. And I guess speaking of, um, you know, pushing hard and that therefore also exhausting ourselves. Now, when it comes to, recovery and um mobility potentially afterwards so we kind of spoke more about like actually warming up and not so much about mobility necessarily but i as most people listening to this podcast know that i do like my mobility work especially when it comes to you know increasing range of motion but also in the sense of um simply it's serving for me anyway as a way to initiate my recovery by activating my parasympathetic nervous system. So simply instead of me doing my last set of deadlifts and then running up the stairs, grabbing my stuff, going to the car and going away, I just force myself to um, foam rollers to stretch or whatever for five to 10 minutes. And simply that, like, I probably could just be sitting there doing nothing and might actually <laughs> achieve the same thing in many aspects, but at least it's something where um, I downregulate before I leave the gym. So yeah, maybe what are, what are your thoughts as a physio on mobility work in general, on any kind of gadgets that people might be using like foam rollers nowadays we even have the theraguns and uh whatever um is there any use to them yeah and do you know what just to start off with lisa i think you probably highlighted and mentioned the most important point which is the person's preferences that is probably at the end of the day the most important thing because what we know from the research from what they found so far is that foam rolling it reduces pain pr pressure thresholds, which basically means it can have a temporary reduction in potentially muscle soreness and reducing kind of that person's perception of kind of pain, um, et cetera. But that also varies from individual to individual, depending on their experience with a foam roller. So if someone's never used a foam roller in their life, actually they probably, it might hurt them more than it does like help them. So like if you're getting your grandma to foam roll for the first time, it's like, you know, it's probably not, it's probably not going to help her very much, but equally if someone's used a foam roller for years and they're very experienced, they're very in tune with their body and they feel a benefit from that. Hey, it's probably going to help them quite a bit. Um, but that's probably also more of a short-term effect in terms of, you know, it will help them. And like you said, there's probably a relaxation element to that as well. So I think put that into context, but equally if, for some people, it might stress them out because they're like, I need to leave in like five mm. minutes. And they're like, I, but I need to foam roll. And they end up just stressing themselves out because they're like, I haven't got any time left. So again, it totally depends on the person and their circumstances. And equally just kind of swing around a little bit. So the research that's been done with foam rolling and warming up is that it has a very, very short term effect in terms of improving range of movement potentially. So again, like, if you're someone who maybe might be struggling a little bit in terms of getting into certain positions in the squat, it could potentially facilitate that a little bit in the short term. But again, it's someone, if you've got the time, if it's something which is a goal priority for you in terms of movement, learning, et cetera, 
it's useful in that context. But if you're someone who's relatively time poor, um, someone who's quite advanced and you've got a good handle on your technique and your movement patterns, it's probably not as important. Um, so again, it's very context specific, I would say, with that regards. And stretching wise, there's been a lot of research done into things like static stretching and things of that nature. Now, I would, from what I've read and my sort of personal opinion, I would say that if your range of movement is sufficient to do all of your exercises, all of your hobbies, all of your day-to-day -day life, then I would say it probably doesn't need to be a priority. But again, if you get benefit from stretching and or your movements or something in your life or hobbies is restricted because of your range of movement, that's when um, that's when you probably might need to work on it and want to think about including it. And a post-workout session is a good time because your body is warm and everything is kind of lubricated and so on. So it can be a good time to do that. And I think also this is a good point to highlight the differences in sports because different sports require different ranges of motion. So for example, in CrossFit, where you have to do lots of overhead work, mobility is incredibly important. Likewise, if you're a gymnast, mobility is really important. But if you're a bodybuilder, mobility probably isn't as important. And actually just doing the exercises through their full range of movement and actually even eccentric training, length and partials, they've been shown to improve range of movement. So again, if you're a bodybuilder, you probably don't need to worry as much about stretching because if you just do the movements through their full range of movement and length and partials, you'll probably just enhance the range of movement just by doing that. But equally, if you're a CrossFitter or someone requiring that just extra level of mobility and you don't have that already, then, you know, that's when you probably want to think about things like stretching and stuff. But again, final point, if you like stretching, like, and you get a relax. So for me, I actually find stretching quite relaxing. And so I probably don't need to, but I probably will stretch every now and again because it just feels good sometimes. It's like when you scratch an itch, you know, sometimes you <laughs> shouldn't, but you just do. So sometimes it's okay because um, it has a relax, static stretching and other stretches can have a relaxate, relaxation effect in and of themselves. So, you know. I, I, I want to highlight two things, which I love that you pointed out. Number one, strength training in and of itself being such a great way to increase range of motion. As you said, the research clearly supports that. Um, important part here, though, is that you obviously during your strength training need to be accessing those ranges of motion. So like if you never do RDLs, you can't expect, oh, strength training and strength training has a great effect on my hamstrings, but I never do. Mm um rdls or whatever so you know obviously looking into what what ranges of motion we're talking about and then you differentiated clear, clearly between passive stretching and active mobilization and i usually um like to recommend more of the active stretching type thing before if we're doing anything before at all and then definitely as you said like passive only for for after your workout um although i mean there are also certain Uh, training types, etc., where they're actually stretching in between sets. Have you ever trained that way? I personally have not. I have to say, I don't have much or any experience with that, but I'm well aware that, you know, stretching in between, let's just say 
um, you do your bench press and then you do some kind of chest stretch and whatever, and then you do another bench press set. Um, I'd be curious to hear what your personal experience is with that kind of thing, if you've trained that way. So um, I've kind of dabbled with it just every now and again. And there has been some recent research that I think, um, but it was more from the context of, I think, hypertrophy than range of movement. So where they kind of had two groups, one set kind of just did their normal sets for, I think it was the soleus and the calf. And they did um, one group kind of just did their normal sets through a full range of movement. Um, and they took it to failure. But another group stretched for, I think, like, 20 seconds or so or something in between sets. And I think like the high, the hypertrophy differences was very marginal in terms of maybe the intersect group. But so again, I, but I don't know if there was a mobility change for those individuals either. And, um, but I don't think that was the sort of purpose of or goal of that study. Okay. So, um, so in terms of range of movement, um, like, I'm not sure. Again, I would say if it's detracting, if you if that person feels it's detracting from their performance, I would probably say take it out because your priority for that session is hypertrophy or strength or whatever you're trying to do. Whereas actually mobility is probably a side goal. And so I'd probably recommend doing that kind of at a different time whenever that suits someone. Um, so that would be kind of like my personal thoughts. And again, like with regards to hypertrophy speci specifically, um, they it just depends again on your personal preferences and whether you're seeing sort of the glass half full or half empty in terms of you know do i have time do i want to try it do i want to give it a go or actually am i happy with what i'm currently doing etc so yeah that would kind of be my thoughts yeah i like it i guess the 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 last point i would like to highlight when it comes to people doing mobility i personally am uh, more of a fan of like picking two to three stretches per session and doing them really well as opposed to doing that that whole we've all seen and probably even done that I myself included here also where you do like a, a third of a second sort of in a stretch and again that'll do okay or then the other thing which nowadays I see um even more often is also maybe someone in pigeon pose or whatever and at the same time texting and um answering three phone calls or whatever it feels like obviously during those times that we're not going to get the down regulatory effect and probably not paying that much attention to what we're actually stretching or if we're in the right position to actually elicit the stretch that we want so i would just encourage people on that front here to you know if you don't have the time or like if you have very limited amount of time one minute of proper stretching whatever particular body or, or um, um, part you want to focus on is going to be better than five minutes sitting there halfway on your phone, already going over your to-do list and probably yanking your neck into a weird position because you want to text at the same time. Doesn't re It's not really going to be the same, but yes, I've done it too. So, you know. <laughs> and do you know what? I'm going to make a confession, Lisa, like now, any time where either I'm eating and I look at my phone or I'm doing something, I can feel you frowning behind me, like, like wagging your finger. And I'm like, oh, no, Lisa would be so disappointed in me right now. Oh, that's funny. So, like, every, so it's definitely changing my, um, my habits for sure. Oh, well, I'm glad, I guess a little bit <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but but um, also just, you really triggered um, 
a thought in my head when you kind of said that as well. And it's a bit more of a philosophical quote, which you've probably heard. It's from Confucius. And he said, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. And I think that's just kind of a point to say, again, you're probably not accomplishing either task to a good standard by trying to do both at the same time. So you might as well just stick with one, whatever that may be. Love it. Absolutely. I think that also leads very nicely into what we wanted to talk about next, a little bit more of a mindset, um, perhaps a underlying thing here. And we, I wanted to speak about when we uh, talk about coaching in general, nutrition or training or both, um, as coaches, but even just as individuals, we need or should be differentiating between what is actually our goal. Are we dealing with a competitor here or is this someone general population? And even just for yourself, like what's my goal? Am I just training to be healthy, good looking, you know, for long longevity in general, or do I actually want to step on stage next year? And I will uh, totally say that for myself, I would probably say I'm in between slash I'm from my mindset. I um, push myself a little bit more to the competitive side, even though I haven't done any competitions or I'm not going to any competitions anytime soon at anyways. And so like um, we can have, we can be gen pop and train with a competitive mindset and we can be not we can actually not be competitive and have a gen pop mindset because because that's not going to be super successful but that's exactly what i wanted to talk about so as a as a coach but also as an individual who has been on um has stepped on stage what would you say should be some of the differences that we should be making in terms of our approach yeah and i think that's just such a good point lisa i think the biggest thing probably from a coaching standpoint is firstly knowing um, when it, so with probably any client, you're going to be going through natural fat loss phases and natural probably gaining phases, maintenance phases, etc. Now, I think a key differentiating factor is that with a, you know, general population or someone who's got general health and wellness goals, you're probably as assuming that they're in a healthy body fat range and they're not kind of in the obese range to start with you're probably never going to you're not going to take that health and wellness person below their body fat settling point or to very very low body fat levels and so so though you know you're probably going to you want them to be in a nice range which they can maintain or that they're always kind of hovering around but with a competitor at certain points during their kind of journey, you're probably going to be taking them to very, very low levels. And so not only do they have to be prepared for that, and so you know you're going to have to take them there. So they're going to be utilized, they're going to be going on very low calorie diets. You probably also want to, you know, um, go through with that client and help them develop those strategies to be able to effectively cope with that, both, you know, from a lifestyle perspective but also a psychological perspective as well and i think the 3d the 3d mj guys really kind of emphasize this message quite a lot where they really emphasize actually working with a client you know for a long period of time leading into their show so that they can develop those strategies so that you know when it comes to contest prep you know it's you know it's it's going to go a bit more smoothly um so i think that's one kind of key element that first comes to my mind 
Yeah, and I, I want to go back to the GenPop person that you mentioned there in terms of not um, pushing their body fat levels too low. I think that's so great to highlight, but also it's so important for a coach and, and even for the client to have that conversation beforehand um, or at the beginning to manage expectations. Because I do not believe that everybody who comes to us as a gen pop person is aware of that. They might have that goal. And then if they have that goal, asking them, okay, number one, why? Number two, we can get there, but you're going to compromise health. Number three, you're not going to maintain that. So, I mean, we can be lifestyle lean. There's a difference between lifestyle lean and being super shredded. Um, and then obviously you want to have that conversation with the competitor too, if they have never been on stage before. I don't know if um, you're aware of the term or you, you use the term triangle of awareness, but with one of my first nutrition certifications through uh, NCI, the Nutrition Coaching Institute, they are really big. Um, they pushed, pushed that concept quite quite a lot in the sense of when we speak to a client, we should always be talking about the triangle of awareness. I'm making hand gestures here. No one can really see what I'm doing. <laughs> so it's not actually helpful. But if if we imagine a triangle and on each one of the corners, we have something else. On one corner, we're going to have health. On one corner, we're going to have performance. And one cor corner, we're going to have aesthetics. And you need to understand that you can never have the optimal of each one of these corners um, at the same time. That's literally impossible because it's a triangle. It's not, they're not all overlaced or, or overlapping or anything like that. So the more you move away from aesthetics or the more you move towards aesthetics, you're probably going to move a little bit away from health. We're, we're not including here obese people. We're just talking about, you know, healthy body fat levels, because that's different. Of course, if you're, you know, reducing your body fat to a healthy level um, in terms of aesthetics, you're going to move towards health too. But also understanding that performance, when we talk about um, strength, when we talk about um, explosiveness, when we talk about even just cognitive performance, it's not going to be optimal if you have super, super low body fat levels either. So I just, I like that visual of a triangle because it kind of um, shows, or you can kind of picture, okay, if I'm during this season, um, or for summer, I want to be a little bit leaner, even though I'm lifestyle a lifestyle client. So I'm going to move a little bit more towards the aesthetics, but I might um, perhaps not have as good of a performance in the gym. I might feel that in my libido or whatever as well. Then over winter, I might move a little bit more towards health and focus on hormones and yes, so I, yeah, I just wanted to um, throw that in there in terms of visuals for people listening, <laughs> that maybe that is helpful to determine, um, yeah, what is realistic for them anyway. I, I really love that, Lisa, because I also think what people could do if they wanted to is you can interweave that with your lifestyle as well. So if you knew like, okay, I've got a really busy period at work, well, my, my goal now is going to be more on the health part of the triangle. So I'm feeling good. My cognitive performance is optimized and I'm just good to go. But maybe kind of like towards the summer or you're going to go on holiday. Actually, maybe I'm going to go towards the more aesthetic side because, you know, I'm going to be on the beach. I'm not going to be wearing as much. And but then I'm probably just going to be going on the sun lounger a little bit. So I don't need to worry about like being stressed out or anything. So 
you know, it's a good, it's a good thing to kind of, you can kind of interlace your life with it a little bit kind of thing. hundred percent. And I think that's another uh, one of our jobs as a coach to talk about periodization with our clients, even if they're gen pop. And of course, if they're competitive anyway, but kind of just talking about, are you going on vacation at some point? When is it most important to you that you're lean or whatever during the year? A lot of people might say like, oh, over the holidays and Christmas, I really don't care that much. Actually, I'm wearing three big sweaters. <laughs> but, you know, during June, it might be a different story. If you live in the Southern Hemisphere, it's probably the other way around. So, you know, important things to consider, I guess. Totally. Did you have did you have other um things that you think are quite different from gen pop to com competitor yes definitely and i think one of the biggest things which is what i kind of learned from a client i ha i had which was the the kind of concept around optimality and and optimal so optimal is something that's branded around quite a lot and also in terms of kind of like a hierarchy or or triangle again mm -hmm. so if you think about kind of like if we were to think about maybe nutrition as an example, you might think about, okay, calories, then you might think about macros, then you might think about, I might get strong, but you might then think about nutrient timing, then you might think about supplements, et cetera. And a client that I had who had goals of health and well-being, and they were really concerned though about, you know, do I need to have four meals a day? And, you know, what about, do I need to have my, do I need to have a protein shake now? And, you know, those sorts of things. And I was like, Hey, come on, let's take it back a bit. What's our goal. Our goal is health and wellness, worrying about nutrient timing, worrying about supplements. We don't need to worry about that essentially, because that's the one percenters that might make a difference if you've got competitive aspirations but for, again, so for a health and well-being client, we probably don't need to worry, at least to a very big degree, those one percenters. So whereas, again, a competitive client, particularly maybe a competitive client who's got high aspirations, so someone like myself or, again, Steve Hall or whoever, actually those things like supplements, we care about those one percenters. So, again, for a competitive client, okay, we need to consider those things. So that's another key differentiator I think coaches and people need to consider. Yeah, I would say with competitors, um, we would probably also assume that those basics are already fully laid and they're almost like, I'm I'm not even going to question that this person hits their macros or eats, you know, 80, 90% whole foods. Whereas if someone gen pop just is starting off and their diet is, you know, quite processed and they're hitting their protein three out of seven days, and then they're asking about, is it important if I eat within 30 or 90 minutes after my training? You're like, it not really for you right now. <laughs> and no, yeah, you know, so I, I think yeah, that's that's definitely good in terms of that um, pyramid here of, of nutrition hierarchy. Um, I would also say as a coach, I personally would probably approach a gen pop person a little bit different than a competitor in the sense of, toughness <laughs> i mean i i personally haven't coached any uh, physique competitors or bodybuilders or so but even just in general if someone has a timeline if they're like i'm getting married at this and that time or i'm you know, that day or it's really important to me that i'm lean on this date i'm gonna be a bit stricter i'm not gonna let it slide as much if they have a 
a setback or if they um, make excuses for themselves, you know, so and so many times. But if, um, it, well, no, I will more if someone has a specific timeline, but if someone is, you know, just general population and they just have that long-term goal of in 50 years time, I want to play with my great grandson. And um, I'm going to be a little bit more lenient and not so much on the tough love side of things. <laughs> yeah. I, I absolutely love that because, because also, because in one sense, that's fulfilling our role as a coach in holding our clients accountable, depending on what their goal is. So that's a big part of what we do. And you also reminded me, so a kind of, in terms of my development as a coach, because I, I guess I came from more of a competitor athlete and then I was actually coaching sort of general population clients, health and well-being. Actually, I found myself internally, sometimes the clients would say, oh, you know, I didn't hit my macros on this day or whatever. And internally, I kind of, I could feel myself going like, what? You know, like, or like I could feel myself kind of wanting to be a bit stricter with them. But I had to almost internally coach myself to say hey no come on their goal isn't the same as yours so you've got to as you said you've got to your accountability for them is different and how you, you've got to be a little bit more flexible because equally I think if we're with those types of clients if we are too strict we can turn them off and they oh, yeah. get despondent and it, it just has the total opposite effect so I think yeah that's just something so important yeah, absolutely. And of course, individuality plays into that as well in the sense of if someone is more responsive to positive feedback or a little bit more, you know, and they need a bit more fire under their seat. <laughs> but yes, I want to make sure I'm, uh, I'm, I'm honoring your time and we're approaching that hour here. So thank you so much. But is there anything else that you'd like to say um, to kind of round it off? Or I mean, we've given, um, I think, hopefully given the listeners some good tips in terms of what's actually helpful in terms of mobility or warming up and what isn't, and maybe also just overthinking their own mindset when it comes to um, their goals. Yeah, no, I, yeah, I think this has been just such another great conversation, Lisa, for sure. I think the biggest thing which I hope listeners take away from kind of our conversation is just um, think about your specific, like for the person listening to this, think about your specific context. Remember there's no black and white universals so when you see a picture on Instagram or you see a study, you know, take it, you know, kind of almost put it aside, take a step back and say, okay, how does this apply to me? It might not apply to you. And, you know, think about what your specific context is, whether that's regards to a warm up, whether that's regards to your goals and think about, okay, how is what I'm seeing applicable to me? And then think, even if it takes you a little while to think about it, don't kind of rush and react emotionally or do anything, just kind of think what's your specific context and then kind of go from there. And I think people will feel a lot calmer about things and they'll probably make better decisions in the long term um, if they kind of have a bit more of that approach. Love it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I'll be making sure to drop all your handles and stuff in the show notes again. So yes, thank you for another great conversation. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure, Lisa. Thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe, leave a review, or share the episode on social. Very much appreciated. You can also follow us on Instagram at Nutrition Coaching and Life or head to our website, www.nutritioncoachingandlife.com, where we provide more valuable content. Have a wonderful day. Now go out and work on your best self.